are like the dreamer who dreams and then lives inside the dream. I told her I understood. And then she said, But who is the dreamer? Hello and welcome to the Lodgers Sorted Cinema's Twin Peaks podcast. My name is Simon Howell. I'm joined as always by Kate Rennebaum. Hello everybody. And here to join us for, she may in fact be our very last returning guest, Dr. Sarah Ann Swain. Hi. Yay. Now, I feel like the last time you were here was like a different era. <laughs> I know. It was, it was like, what, 15 episodes ago or something? I mean, I was I was younger then. <laughs> we all were. <laughs> you guys, it's it'll be like a Cole's dream. It'll be like looking backwards 25 years ago to like dimly cast our minds back to when Sarah was on the podcast before. <laughs> I'm excited to hear how Sarah's been enjoying the podcast. She's been, or I mean, the podcast, been enjoying the show. <laughs> I mean, we'll take compliments about the podcast too, sure. But I meant uh, the return. Sarah's been traveling and busy, and so I haven't had time to uh, to hear from her how she's been finding the return. I've been really enjoying it. Um, I mean, I kind of like let a lot of episodes accumulate before I could kind of dive in, which was nice. But it also meant that I feel like. I wasn't able to like let each episode kind of like sit and like stew as much as I would have liked. You know, I feel like I missed a lot of things. Um, but yeah, no, I'm on board. I, I love it. I feel like you've had a pretty like <clears throat> unique experience then because I, I know that I think just about everyone that who's gotten back to us who's been listening to the podcast has been watching you know, the second an episode goes up if for you know those of us who are streaming it, which I think is most of us, whereas you've just been, you know, how many episodes did you basically get through in one sitting or two sittings? I mean, sometimes like four or five. Holy <laughs> That's a lot of stimulus. Um, it did things to me. <laughs> <laughs> it made me feel funny in my special place. <laughs> no, it was good. It's, it's good. I just, I kind of, especially after this week's episode, I, I almost want to like go back and like rewatch everything from the beginning now because I'm like... Oh my god, there's so much. I swear it took us like a full hour to get to special places the last time you were on. <laughs> well, Here it took us uh, two and a half minutes flat. It's, uh... um, <laughs> it was long ago. Just aged greatly in between. There was I was reading a recap of this episode and somebody, maybe it was Keith Ulick or something, mentioned... Uh, in res- in like regards to the truck driver character who harasses uh, Sarah at the bar, he, he mentioned that line... Um, uh, it's a world full of truck drivers that the woman Beulah says in episode like, I don't know, two or three, something like that. And I was shocked at how far back that felt. I was like, I was like, was that in the new ones or the old ones or a different show? Like, it's just <laughs> thing, things from the beginning of the return are, are fading into my memory. And I, I don't know, I was really sad to discover, actually, um, that when we get close to the last couple of episodes here, I'm going to be working at the Telluride Film Festival and I'm not going to have time to sit down and rewatch everything, which I really wanted to do. I'm actually kind of jealous of you, Sarah, because my guess is that you're maybe able to see connections between the episodes that I am missing, just not being able to have time to like sit down and watch everything in a clip again. I really would love to do that, but 
Oh, well. So it goes. Uh, I myself did not get a chance to even watch this episode until... I believe Tuesday morning because I was uh, I my my house was de-interneted for several days, um, which meant several agonizing days of trying not to look at Twitter or Facebook or anything basically at all. I did have some things, some like vague things spoiled for me, but I mean, as you can sort of guess from the return in general in this episode in particular, it's not really a thing you can spoil. Um, you just kind of have to sit through it. And I guess that's as good a segue as we're going to get to actually talk about uh, part 14 of The Return. And uh, with I should just quickly mention there's only three weeks left because, of course, we get two episodes in the last week. And <laughs> I, I, I also am wondering how this is all going to play on rewatch because... You know, I, it, it's funny, we, you know, we, we brought in uh, Glenn Kenny and Seth Mnookin for our last two episodes, in which, like, compared to this episode, basically nothing happened. <laughs> <laughs> like, let's be real. <laughs> Whereas, it felt like we got an entire season's worth of incident in this one episode. I mean, I don't even know where to begin exactly, but, uh, you know, let's start with Sarah Palmer. Oh, Why not? Really? Let's start really? There. You want to go there first? Yeah. yeah, let's do it. Yeah, I'm 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 pulling a fast one on you. Um <laughs> because, you know, we we've talked a lot about um and it's also well, first of all, I think because that scene kind of exists in a vacuum, maybe it's a good place to start. And second, you know, we have talked a lot about um, you know, Grace Sabrisky and her position as the sort of quintessential Lynch actor, but I also wanted to bring it up because, you know, there's a lot going on yeah. in the world yeah. at the moment. And I heard more than one person express that that scene was like a personal tonic to them. And I wanted to know if that if that rang true for anyone else. Oh, uh, hell yeah, definitely. No, uh, that, yeah, that, that was very true. I mean, I think there was a very clear sense in which after that scene was over, I was sort of like... Yes. And and also, I mean, it was doubled. It was a doubling down on uh, the earlier yes of Chad being arrested uh, by Chad also and by that, that guy's face, too. It's like I, the scene with Sarah Palmer. Um, I don't know. It was it was fascinating for any number of reasons. I mean, I think, again, it's so clearly at the nexus of like these questions that have been so prevalent in the return about like what the show is doing in relation to women and how men treat women and you know, I mean, for me, that's that's clearly a scene where you could read it and you could think, oh, this is a man being horrible to a woman and how dare a television show show that. And I think completely missed the point of like what um, The Return is doing. And I think, I don't know, putting um, a viewer of a television show in the place of a woman being harassed at a bar is not something that you see very often. It's certainly not something that you see very often done in such a way where you are really meant to kind of identify with that position of what it's like to have that happen to you. Um, And you're certainly not given the chance to see that character take her face off and, like, eat the guy's throat as often as we should be. (laughs) I wish that was a thing we just got (laughs) to see all the time. Um, I mean, I feel completely ill-equipped to talk about this reveal with Sarah Palmer in relation to like the lore of the show or the overall mythos of the show. Cause I, from where I'm standing now, it's simply not clear to me. I mean, I think people have made, you could make the claim that this is something to do with like the bug that crawls into the girl's mouth in part eight. Maybe Um, I'm still not convinced that girl is Sarah Palmer. So I don't know. I'm not really, I don't really need, I think to understand that level yet. I think on a pure visceral level, it's just so satisfying to see a show sort of, 
give space to that kind of experience of the world and then equally give space to like the frustration and anger and like rage that might come after being in that kind of position. Uh, and that is sorely something that I think many people in the world are feeling right now. It was actually kind of uncanny how perfectly timed that episode was for that. I mean, and in a sad way, I wish it wasn't the case, but yeah, I mean, I was like, this is amazing. Um, but it was also very terrifying. Um, yeah. Like, there's yeah. uh, there's also a lot of talk, like, in the reviews that I've been reading where um, after she bites the guy's, you know, neck out, um, that she kind of, like, she screams and it's, it's kind of described as though she's feigning, like she's acting uh, mm -hmm. surprised. Um, but I think she might genuinely be surprised and like horrified yeah. by what really I think so I that, that's how I read it I agree with Sarah I don't I don't think that I'm not sure I fall one way or the other but that was how I saw it the first time I actually thought maybe she genuinely is surprised like maybe this is not something she understands or has control over um that's trebled a little bit when she goes back to the evil like Sarah Palmer line delivery at the end but it's sort of it's still unclear I mean it's still unclear yeah I don't know to me it was it was it was pretty clear that she was feigning it, if only because, the, I mean, first of all, we've seen her be distraught, and, like, that was pretty low-key for her being distraught. And second, like, the way that she turns to Barkeep afterwards and is like, dude, do you really want to, you want to do this? Mm. You want to do this again? Do you see the neck? <laughs> like, <laughs> that to me is not really... But, like, something happens. Really. Something happens. There's a shift in her performance. Like, there's a moment where she just kind of stops and she turns to him yeah. and says I'll eat you <laughs> in this like really like chilling voice and I feel like that shift kind of like signals this like I don't know like something yeah. has been activated and yeah. I, it's unclear what the relationship is between Sarah Palmer and this kind of like this darkness and this dark entity um I don't know so I'm curious how long it's been inhabiting her you know like because you're under the impression that she's kind of been, um, you know, uh, what's the word? Yeah. Like sedating herself for quite yeah. some time. And like, maybe this is how she copes with it. Because another big theme, I think, of Twin Peaks in general is just like the fragility and like finitude of the human like psyche and what it's able to kind of actually entertain. And yeah, I don't know. I feel like you see the, the way that she's maybe not able to fully, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, admit or be mm -hmm. uh, or acknowledge which like, which like, would fit very well with like the sort of earlier on. lineage of Sarah Palmer as like a character who lived in a house with a man who was raping his daughter for many years and managed to not see that even though it was clearly sort of something that she was aware of on some level I don't, there's that actually I think that's really interesting I hadn't thought about it that way Sarah this idea of like the sedating is maybe a continuation of like the modes in which she maybe was sort of living or, or approaching the world prior to that um, I think that's true I do think it's kind of like brazen how much the show has just sort of radically changed her character like the stakes around her character and, and what's going on with her I mean it you know like she has seemed sort of tangential at best to the return until the last few episodes and then all of a sudden she's sort of revealed to be this entirely different player in the universe of the show than what we thought she was I, I, it was kind of thrilling really mm -hmm. yeah. um, one of the other reasons that I wanted to start with um, talking about Sarah Palmer because this is totally a thing that I planned was the fact that this is Sarah's the sort of latest example and there are several in this episode um, of characters previously 
at least not directly affiliated with the sort of more supernatural elements of the show um, being folded into that. And I'm, I'm mm. thinking of Sarah. I'm also, of course, thinking of uh, perhaps the pivotal sequence of the episode, which is Andy mm. going to uh, going to the lodge and uh, getting a having a sit down chat with the firemen. Of course, there's uh, other examples in this episode, but um, maybe we should start there. Um, Andy has not gotten a ton to do yeah. in in the return. He's yet another character who has sort of been on the sidelines and is suddenly kind of um, thrust onto the stage of Twin Peaks history, we might say. I have to say the sequence in which he uh, sort of sits sits down and watches uh, watches some home movies of uh, of of himself and some things that have happened and seems to uh, seems to sort of uh, grow a new purpose. Uh, I think was one of probably the most uh, affecting sequence of the episode for me. Yeah, there is a lot to get into in that whole scene because there's so many different elements of it too, right? I mean, even before you get to the dream, there's all of this really fabulous um, projection of uh, basically the entire history of Twin Peaks from Laura Palmer through Fire Walk With Me, like all the way up to the return on this sort of dream screen thing for Andy. Um, Even before you get to all of that, there's some really fascinating stuff going on with them arriving in the woods and... um, I don't know, these, this strange experience of the woods. And for, I don't know, for me, there was some, some of the more kind of subtle, interesting stuff going on in the woods sequence with, with Lynch's filmmaking abilities. Um, when you rewatch it, you notice some very strange things. Like at one point, there is a, a scene where the camera like moves through the air, maybe 50 feet above the ground in a straight line through the woods. And it's a very uncanny sort of like camera movement. It doesn't, it doesn't serve any purpose. Like there couldn't be any human at that angle. It's a very strange thing. That mixed with Lynch, like doing an odd digital effect where it looks like he's, there's like frames that are being dropped out of the scenes where Andy and everybody are walking through the woods. Um, so you're already sort of in the kind of an odd space where you can't quite tell what is part of, again, your television delivery service and what's part of the actual show. Um, and then of course the sort of like, the sweet, like, holy fool figure of Andy is the one that gets taken up into the, whatever we're calling that space. I'm not sure, the, the black room, white room. Um, and again, there's something fascinating to that, the idea that Andy is always the one who Lynch characteristically goes to for these jokes about how he just doesn't quite get things, or he's very slow, or he's sort of always on the outside of, like, understanding what's happening. And then here, he's the one that, maybe because of that, I don't know, gains access to, like, this sort of direct line of knowledge. Um, I don't know, that was all fascinating. The whole sequence in the in the black and white room was stunning. Like, this, the backward smoke, this idea of... Um, yeah, I don't know. Again, the the binge watching almost of the whole history of Twin Peaks by Andy was all fascinating for me. It was. And I think that, I don't know. I mean, there's a reason why it's Andy too. I think there's, I don't know. There, I remember somewhere where like Briggs saying something about, or like it's in his notes that only love will open the portal or oh, something yeah. like that. And right. so there is this kind of like the way that he kind of triggers it is, because he holds her hand, uh, Nado, I guess mm. she's called. He's the one, like everyone else yeah. is kind of like, almost like paralyzed by what they're seeing and unable to act. And it's, you know, Andy who kind of kneels down and takes her hand in this like really tender moment. And that's kind of like what, I don't know, I feel like triggers the whole the whole thing that he's like worthy. He's, he, this is what it's about. I feel like it fits that Andy would be the one. 
but just to see yeah. the the change in him, yeah. you know, afterwards, so empowered and confident about the knowledge. That scene that we see in his sort of, um, I, li- I like the way you put it, Kate, of the, the Twin Peaks binge watch within our collective Twin Peaks binge watch. Um, <laughs> that scene where he's just sort of like walking with Lucy, is that something we've seen before or was that new? I, well, it, we haven't seen it before, so it's unclear if it was supposed to be like a past thing that we haven't seen or if that's a new thing that we don't know where it's going, but we haven't seen it before. Okay, I didn't think so. So that, that was another sort of fascinating element to me is like there seems to be some sort of importance to that, whereas like it, it's but it also seemed like this very sort of banal um, shot in the middle of these moments of sort of Twin Peaks lore, yeah. which is uh, I'm, I'm not sure where, what that means exactly or if it indeed means anything. I'm also wondering about is and someone can remind me on this, but is this is the previous time we saw this black and white space or, you know, the 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 lodge except in black and white was it just in the opening moments of the season or has there been anything else well when in part eight when uh the firemen and and senorita dido are sitting in that room for a long time and then the fireman the giant walks off and to the to the stage space and the laura bubble is created that's all takes place in that same space i don't pretend to have any sense of what the cosmology is between these spaces or what the significance was i just wanted to uh, iron that out for certain all i know is that the that black and white room geographically seems to be located on the same like pink ocean thing that coop falls into at one point because that they're linked the pink oceans are connected but again that doesn't explain much <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think I'm, I'm having difficulty like articulating how i feel about this episode because more than more than perhaps any episode that came before, I feel like it's so dependent on what comes afterwards. There's so many new elements introduced, or at least sort of fresh takes on things we've seen before, in some cases things we saw quite a while ago, that I feel like I'm still working out how it reframes my expectations for like what what this endgame is going to be and like what we can possibly imagine sort of um, percolating up and the, the the ultimate example of that for me is the scene that I had the most misgivings about and perhaps the scene that I have the most misgivings about of anything in the return which is the I want to say seven or eight minute scene of uh, James who I was not expecting anything out of to be honest uh, sitting down and having a chat with his uh, co-worker Freddie um he of the frankly awful cockney accent or mockney accent or whatever it is you'd like to call it um and i think my 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 principal misgiving about that sequence besides the fact that it just never ends uh, which is you know something i've gotten used to at this point um is the way that freddie describes his ordeal with the glove um and the way that he describes like meeting the fireman and getting these hyper specific instructions about what to do with it and what it all means although obviously he doesn't know the exact nature of his destiny i've seen other people guess that his destiny is to have an arm wrestling match with evil coop which (laughs) if that's actually true um okay i don't know a lot about that scene just felt off and to me in a way that other things in the return haven't and i don't know i just 
There's something about that performance, that character, and the mythology that's being built in there that just really rubs me the wrong way. I have I have many thoughts about that scene, and I they've lead me to sort of feel the opposite. I think of of you, Simon. But I, I I it took me a while to get there. I wasn't sure about that scene at first, but um, but I actually wanted to hear what uh how, what how Sarah reacted to that scene for uh, before I launch into my thing. How did how did you find it, Sarah? I I mean I can see where you're going, Simon, because it is very much like on the nose. It's um, but I do. I like the spirit of it, the idea that it's like a tall tale, you know, like Bobby was kind of talking about how his his father would tell him, they would tell each other tall tales. And this is a tall tale. Like that is exactly what it is. Keeping in the spirit of like, you know, as a folkloric tradition, whether or not it's real or not. I mean, I think I will like it as a tall tale if we never see that character again. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My guess is that like, I don't know, maybe he'll have some role to play. I knowing Lynch and Frost, it it will not be that this random character like sails in and lands a single punch that like solves all the problems in Twin Peaks. You know what I mean? Which is like how his storytelling would would lead you to want to believe that that things could be that simple, right? I mean, the kind of story that he tells is like a, it's a superhero narrative. It's this idea that it's like an origin story about a superhero waking up and being given a power and and then having the power to solve like some situation basically through violence, which is so antithetical to like what Twin Peaks as a whole is about. And my guess is that that's maybe sort of what you were picking up on, Simon, that you found quite quite unsettling about it. I think Olivier said something similar. And yeah, the idea that Twin Peaks would sort of nominate a hero to, to, to function in that way is just not how this whole show has ever been, right? The heroes in Twin Peaks don't solve things through violence. They solve things and, through... And, yeah. and that it's going to be some guy from London town. Oh. <laughs> God, um, the, the accent thing was a little weird. I mean, I, like I'm sure listeners have already figured out some of this backstory, but the kid who plays that character uh, was sort of best known, I guess, as like a YouTube star for a video where he does like the English language in 67 different accents or something. And Lynch picked him out of that. So this is presumably Lynch, like literally just having fun with accents or something. It's a bit unclear, but were um, were any of the accents good? (laughs) I don't know. I haven't seen the video. Um, I, whatever. It didn't, it didn't bother me that much. The sort of goofy uh, accent stuff. I, I think, I have since come around, particularly, I will give, uh, I think Emily Stevens at the AV Club was the one who wrote this. So I will give Emily Stevens uh, credit for her recap because I think she did a really good job about convincing me of like the um, integral quality of that scene for the whole episode, which is basically this idea that, you know, this is re- this is the returns episode about storytelling and about um, what it means to sort of like create narratives for yourself and create like how we create our own ways of seeing the world and participating in the world. And I think what's really fascinating about the scene with the, with the bad Cockney accent guy is that just, you know, two or three scenes earlier, we have had an amazing sequence where a character goes to the black and white room and actually experiences what this is like and, and sees this sort of amazing kind of visual and sonic experience that, as we've already demonstrated, is very difficult to sort of put into adequate words. It's very difficult to describe what that scene is like in true Lynch style. And then, like, two or three scenes later, we have this very odd like plodding description by a character who verbally narrates his trip to the same space and like that alone that contrast between these like extremely divergent ways of representing that kind of experience already makes me think like you know Lynch and Frost are very aware of what they're doing putting those things right next to each other and highlighting just how different the forms of experience are what's fascinating is like I I find that the Cogni character storytelling like 
it's still interesting. I mean, you're still sort of like, I was still sort of caught up in it. I was still like, this is interesting. Like, where could this possibly be going? Um, but I think by the end of it, you're left very much feeling like because it is so almost silly and so outside of the universe of Twin Peaks, it leaves you thinking, you know, maybe this guy's experience of the black and white room was entirely different than Andy's. And it's and it's purely like a subjective thing. Or this is simply, you know, the framework that he has for narrating events like that is like story, like superhero storytelling almost. And so that's how he talks. I mean, this idea that the fireman is sitting around having a conversation with him, as you say, Simon, where he's like, directly saying things like go to a hardware store and get rubber gloves like it would never happen according to how we know the giant and we know that space so far but there's something interesting about the way the fact that this young guy narrates it like that i i quite like that scene i've come around on it a lot again this is sort of why like i think that's a totally <laughs> i'm not gonna sit here after on the on our 26th podcast and say kate you're full of shit. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um i i do feel like i need whatever is coming to like properly know how to process mm-hmm. that scene. Yeah. Uh, which I know it, I'm, you know what? I feel like now I can finally like throw that out as an excuse. I've had a good run of not using that as an excuse of not, not to know what to make of a thing yet. I understand that. Definitely. Um, it will be interesting to see where rubber glove guy goes. Two things I wanted to mention about this scene, but like the first one is, yeah, I think it's interesting that it's a green glove and then it's less about maybe like, uh, how it might be used as like a weapon, but like more as like a protection or something. I, I'm thinking about like the ring that keeps coming up, like you know the the jade ring uh, from the owl cave, because that's also green as well. And there's I don't know. I feel like there might be something to that because it, it also makes me think of like when Sarah Palmer takes off her face. Like we do see like not just the smile, like the teeth. We also see a hand with like uh, like a white hand with like a black ring finger. I don't know, maybe there's something to it, like whoever wears the ring must have, like, withstand the ring's power, or, I, I don't know, maybe oh, that. Right. <laughs> so wait, like, if he, like, if he puts the, the glove on the ring, or the ring over the glove, like, it, tur- it turns into an infinity stone or something? <laughs> yeah, like, a ha- it's like a hand condom, like, I don't know. <laughs> it's a spiritual <laughs> ring finger condom. <laughs> yeah, so I, I thought about that, and then there was another weird thing too that I noticed that will segue to like the other scene. Like there was a se- like the scene just before this happens uh, in the jail cell, right, with like Chad and NATO and like the creepy drunk guy with like the messed up face. Who, yeah, I want to talk about who him. Who must but... be the dad of Melting Boy because he's like <laughs> Melting Man. <laughs> but I think he might be Billy. Uh, but anyway. Uh, Chad is like freaking out and he's like this is a nut house and he's you know and then like that's the last bit of dialogue we hear and then we cut to this scene of Freddie breaking walnuts with his hand and so I'm like that's so weird like why segue between like nut house and then like cracking nuts and like walnuts are basically like the brains of like the nut family right like they look like brains um and then and then I don't know I also noticed then, too, at the very end of the episode, I'm sorry, I'm skipping over things, but when those two girls are, like, talking, um, Sophie and the other one's name is Megan, I think, and Sophie says to Megan, like, you're, get, you, you're getting high in that nut house or whatever. So it's, like, this this weird reference to, like, nut house and, like, I don't know, making me think of, like, brains and I'm sorry, uh, can we go back to crazy brains people? Of the I mean, family? that's often... <laughs> They're universally accepted as the smartest of the nuts. <laughs> you made that up. <laughs> um, 
no, but they have like some sort of like uh, essential fatty acids in them that are like good for brains, supposedly. And they also look like brains. Come on. Give me this. The other thing that we kind of sort of haven't acknowledged yet about the um, the scene with the horrible accent is the fact that like, why is it with James? Like of all the characters to overhear this story, why is it James? And why is it on his birthday? The poor, it's the only time I've ever felt bad for James. Well, I like I like the the idea, the framing of like the story as a gift. I actually think that that matters in like the space of the return. Mm-hmm. You know, right? This idea of like, yeah, like a story and a, and a creation of a sort of world is like maybe the most wonderful thing that we have. You know, like the world is kind of a crappy place a lot of the time, and like as we have all been experiencing with the return, the ability to like to weave a, a world that kind of boggles your mind and like opens your eyes is a, is a pretty radical and amazing thing. And I actually, I like the way that that's dramatized, like where James is, you know, kind of a sad older dude who has a crush on a woman who's married to somebody else and like doesn't have a whole lot going on. And, boy. and that's right. And then, but then at the end of his story, like at the end of this kid's story, James is like, that was a great story. You know, it's like, he's kind of completely forgotten all that stuff for like five minutes. I mean, I, I actually really, can love I just that. say that I'm so glad that the return, has given us what we truly wanted which is yet another story where james gets involved with a married woman (laughs) (laughs) oh god Uh, but um i I will say sarah though that i think uh i'm gonna nominate that theory right now for maybe my favorite fan theory of all time which is that it's it's really about the nut logics in, in twin peaks that's really that's how we get there i i like this a lot it's my favorite theory i'm not joking listen It's called a nut house because, like, I actually researched this because I was like, why do we call, you know, like, uh, asylums or hospitals for uh, people with, you know, psychological issues like nut houses? Why why do we use that kind of slang? And it's because, uh, you know, we often talk about the mind as a nut. Do we, though? Is that something we do? Well, you know, you're off your nut. Like, you're kind of like, it's a, I feel like there is some kind of, like, metaphor there. I don't know. And I don't know why I keep coming back to it, but it has something to do with like, who's the dreamer? And like, are we in like, who's, who's mind? Who's creation? Is the... We have to get to the, who's the dreamer thing pretty soon. Cause I feel like we're, we're dancing around it, but, but Simon, were you gonna, were, did you have like a prompt? You wanted us to go somewhere next? No, I'm sorry. I'm still stuck on nuts. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Can we go back to the, like the sequence in the jail? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yep. we can. So do, does anyone else think that, the drunk guy is Billy, perhaps, or maybe, um, I don't know, like, I feel like not only is he creepy because he's, like, bleeding from his face, like, his nose and mouth, like Billy supposedly was, um, he keeps, he echoes, just like Dougie does. And it's, like, this repetition of, like, the last words that people say, which in, like, Greek mythology is, like, that's why Echo was cursed, right? Because she she hid the truth or like she prevented the truth from coming out. And so she was cursed by not being able to say anything except repeat. I don't know. It just seems like weird choice that they both, both the Dougie character and this like creepy drunk guy is, you know, also does this. I think I think somebody else, one of the other recappers I read, was talking sort of extensively about the the, the figure of the tulpa, which we haven't gotten to yet. The scenes with Tammy and, and Albert and everybody at the beginning, but um, yeah, the figure of the tulpa is like a, a being created by 
you know, a, 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 in another interesting word for this, uh, this week's vocabulary list, a tulpamancer uh, creates the tulpa with their mind. Um, but anyway, this idea that, that, yeah, the guy in the jail, it does seem conspicuously like he has a lot of the characteristics of somebody like Dougie with, with um, the original Dougie, the Dougie that's now gone, the Dougie that disappeared being probably the most likely uh, figure for who actually has been a tulpa in, in this new narrative, right? I mean, Dougie seems to have been created by Evil Coop explicitly. And like, you know, he that Dougie character seemed to be doing okay, but there is something interesting, this idea that the drunk guy in the jail, like, seems to be kind of breaking down or like, like falling apart. I mean, it's very difficult to tell what is going on with his face. I mean, that you can, you can just imagine Lynch sort of gleefully, like, you know, participating and putting this weirdo makeup on the guy where it's very difficult to tell if it's like a disease or if he's been punched or like what is going on and the puking and anyway so yes he does seem like almost just this sort of like meaty body that's just echoing things and isn't really a kind of person which I mean so maybe there's like a, a Billy double and that's who that is I, I'm not sure both readings work together it's like I'm not I'm not as inclined to believe that he is Billy if if there's this sort of like strange echoing thing although who knows maybe Billy is another created figure I don't know in which case I mean Here's what I find so interesting about this episode is that, like, even though a lot happens, like, so there again, there's so much, inc- like, every scene basically is packed with incident. Yeah. As we sort of discussed, I think, a week or two ago, I'm not sure which episode it was, it doesn't answer anything. It's just more questions, like, are the are they Tulpas? Is there more than one of them now? Who, who, are, who is the Tulpamancer? Yeah. Uh, now I'm asking questions I did that contain words I didn't even know existed three minutes ago. <laughs> you know, like it's not getting any simpler. Yeah, we should change the this question from uh, who is the dreamer to who is the tulpamancer. <laughs> um, and who is a tulpa? I mean, maybe everyone's a tulpa, you know? I mean, in the space of the show, it's like, what is, I don't know, what's the relationship between reality and representation and like Wait, what are, is... are you saying like this is going to end in some sort of like saint elsewhere type situation and everyone's going to be like twin peaks is going to be in a snow globe and... <laughs> um i think somebody uh maybe that same person writing about the tulpas i actually thought like there was a lot of speculation about again who might be a tulpa and i thought the only one that that i read that that i actually found quite like evocative was the idea that um maddie in the original series almost functions as a tulpa in the sense of like people wanted Laura to come back, you know, maybe her mother, like this idea that, that she was such a kind of desired image that it materializes this figure. That's basically a double Mm. of Laura. And I actually, I was like, that's a really fascinating um, kind of interesting point. It is kind of interesting that like Madeline has never been referenced basically Mm. like besides at like maybe a couple episodes after she died. Yeah, that's true. Hey. Uh, and she hasn't been referenced at all in the return she, that she, I can think she of. She does not get uh, like angels and and golden ball births the way that that Laura does. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, no, that makes total sense, right? Because the tulpa like serves a purpose, kind of. It's like um, whether it's like therapeutic in the case of Maddie, maybe, or um, yeah, like there the, it has a purpose, and then when it no longer serves that purpose, it's ceases to exist so heather graham basically oh <laughs> uh, yeah totally she was a, a tulpa for coop a nice little tulpa for coop wah, wah. Wah, wah. um but i do think uh, sarah you you brought up this thing about this question about like what is the role of representation in reality in the show and i, I actually think it's like we should come back to, to tammy and albert and everything that happens at the beginning but i think we probably should get to cole's 
dream now because it's sort of fundamental to the whole episode um, to talk about these questions of, of representation and reality and everything. So, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. We should talk about Cole's dream and uh, longtime listeners of the podcast will know that I have had a long, like an, an at least, I want to say 10 episodes standing prediction of Monica Bellucci being in the <laughs> cast to play Donna. And even before, even before I was able to watch this episode, I got multiple pings on Twitter from people saying, oh, Simon's going to watch the episode and he's going to have thoughts. And uh, unfortunately, I did have the, the secret uh, divulged to me ah, damn uh, indirectly. I know. Before the episode, it was going to, you know, a 48 hour delay of yeah. getting to watch the episode. It was bound to happen. I can't say I'm disappointed. Um, <laughs> although. Now that we don't have Baluji playing Donna, I'm just assuming that she will never be seen, referenced, or represent like represented in any way because I felt like that was our best shot. Yeah. Unless she's played by Charlene Yi, which <laughs> I mean, Charlene, that would I be forgot. inspired, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> the there's something about when I when I was talking earlier about sort of um, characters not really associated with the supernatural side sort of drifting into that even james sort of by association through hearing that story and hearing about the fireman is now kind of tied into the lore and and also that scene of him sort of drifting through the furnaces also seemed to suggest that he's about to sort of cross over um but that wasn't the only sort of dimension that was added to twin peaks this week because we also got like the series first like overt use of meta humor <laughs> through this sequence yeah which at least the first that i can think of unless i'm missing something wait you mean with his reference to Bellucci? yeah yeah um yeah i mean i i guess i mean it certainly is is maybe one of the first um overt references to something that so clearly exists in quote like our reality versus the the reality of of twin peaks the television show uh is the figure of monica Bellucci as an as an actress um that when when Cole said that line, that might have been the loudest I have laughed at this show. I mean, again, Wally Brando is maybe the longest I've laughed consecutively, but like that Monica Bellucci line, I it just it, it was like a, a a smack from another planet. Like I, there is no way that I could have ever expected that Gordon Cole would introduce Monica Bellucci as a figure to the show that way. I mean, it just it it blew my mind. And then the thing I loved rewatching it was that. It's like it's like David Lynch knows that you are going to be so thrown by it because there's almost like a laugh beat. There's like a laugh track space. Yeah, where it's like yeah, he yeah. just waits for a few minutes for you to get your bearings again before he like continues with the this is what my Monica Bellucci dream stuff was. Oh man, you know what was? Uh, I'll I'll let you get in in a second, Sarah. But the the other thing about that scene was I I had been because I was digging for clips from Louis last week. I was thinking about how the Lynch scenes on Louis. Uh, sort of, you know, in a, in a, in a, a, to me, a, a pretty real way, kind of predict, predicted the style and tone of a lot of the return, particularly the Gordon Cole scenes. And I thought it again this week when we got him talking about Monica Bellucci, and then we've got that long beat, like you said, almost like a laugh beat, where a, a, one of the sort of trademark drones comes in, so we could just have a second to process what's happening, which is very much like if you go and watch the. Um, the first scene where uh, Lynch's character on Louis shows up and there's just these long pauses and um, the way that the, um, you know, that sort of tinny digital cinematography, etc. Um, I was just really struck at the similarity. But yeah, anyway, I don't really know where I'm going with this except to say that there's like 
there's only a few episodes to go and we're still getting these sequences with no precedent. Yeah. Which is kind of amazing. Uh, but but sorry, what were you going to say, Sarah, about Bellucci? I didn't really have anything to say about Bellucci <laughs> in particular. I mean, I was just more curious about what his other dreams were about Monica Bellucci. Sort of alludes that he had really an- he had another <laughs> Monica Bellucci dream. Um, but I I don't know what I liked about the whole sequence was. I mean, I like the appearance of David Bowie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we had I had people making we it was actually quite funny. Uh, Jonathan and Adrian, who were who were guests on the week where we did our sort of like off week question week, um, who we've been telling them forever that they need to watch Firewalk with me because they still haven't seen it. They they still hadn't watched it when this episode came on, and they texted afterwards and they were like, "David Bowie is on this show." <laughs> We were like, you have to go watch Firewalk with me. But but it was interesting to think about it because I bet there are definitely people watching The Return who did not watch Firewalk with me. And I imagine that there was a level of kind of surprise at Bowie's arrival that that was very different for them or something. I don't know. What I, I do really like about that, just in general, is the way that there's a kind of sense in Cole's dream that, I don't know, like it lines up so nicely with the rest of the series and especially The Return because there's so many characters that... Uh, are missing or are dead and then there are a lot of actors who are dead that aren't able to return and the way that they're kind of treated I just love it I love this gesture that even after you die you are still present somehow and that your traces remain and they still have this kind of ability to like affect the world in some way and have almost like a life of their own an ability to kind of leave a mark or like kind of bring a certain like a heft or like a a plenitude or a solidity of like being to the world. I feel like there's going to be a whole sort of new genre of film studies in the coming years about representations of dead movie stars. And like, cause you know, there's, there's been all, all this talk of, you know, licensing, um, licensing the, the likenesses of actors in order to create digital recreations of them that could theoretically star in new films we just had i didn't see it but in in rogue one we yeah. had the sort of what i heard was quite ghoulish uh, appearances by peter cushing as well as the sort of digitally de-aged carrie fisher and things like that and and what lynch is doing with these sort of you know these these people who passed on is so radically different from that i don't know i just i feel like this is a whole area of scholarship that could be founded by someone yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, I find the whole, I find the whole question of using older footage from Fire Walk with Me in in this show as well to be just fascinating as well. Like this idea of, of almost like cinematic time travel. I mean, in a, in a more mundane way, certainly it's like the dream, and it's build up to the scene from Fire Walk with Me. You you could just say that it sort of functions as a very creative way to do a flashback, right? I mean, you could just say like, oh well, the point of that scene is that they want to show us this thing from Fire Walk with Me, where Bowie points at at Coop and says, "Who is that there?" Um, or "Who do you think that is there?" Uh, I, I mean, maybe that's true. I don't really think that that even counts as sort of like straightforward enough information that you could say that the flashback is there to just deliver that. It's much, the whole thing is much more just sort of about the effective experience of it. But this mm-hmm. this moment when like Cole turns back and looks at himself 25 years in the past, I mean, again, that is one of those like perfect moments that that you can only have in cinema and Lynch just knows how to do this so brilliantly. It's like boiling the whole experience of the return down to a single cut of of Coop uh, of Cole now looking at Cole 25 years ago. I mean it, it's I don't know, it's uncanny, it's beautiful, it's strange. It also does this sort of amazing thing where um it turns 
Cole into uh, like almost a spectator of Fire Walk With Me the way, the way that we are, right? It's like for him, it's supposed to be a memory, but it's him rewatching the film the way that we go back and rewatch the film, mm-hmm. which in turn then opens up like the idea of spectatorship of Twin Peaks to a form of dreaming, right? I mean, that's what that's what's being equated there, right? Is is Cole dreaming about his past is the same as us rewatching this this sort of fictional world from 25 years ago. I mean, I find that all like stunning and amazing. My this is much more superficial, but my other favorite thing about the sequence is that if you saw this episode before someone else did and they asked you, "Do we get Cooper back in this episode?" you could earnestly say, "Yeah, we do." <laughs> that is true. We do have old old little old little Cooper in it, which is very nice. Um I actually I thought that whole thing was genius, this idea of like them excavating that line from Fire Walk with me, which um, for maybe people who haven't rewatched Firewalk with me recently, it's like in the original run, it, it, it doesn't particularly stand out in that scene because, um, the David Bowie character is saying a whole string of kind of non sequiturs that, that just sort of none of them make any sense. And so it, that line doesn't stand out on its own. And there is something that's kind of genius about Frost and Lynch, um, being able to go back and excavate this and give it a whole a whole completely different meaning now when David Bowie sort of is able to, to do that. I mean, Actually, I think back on it, it's, it's quite possible that it was written at the time. Lynch wrote it at the time in reference to the idea of the later coup being stuck in the lodge, etc. But I do think there is something really wonderful to the way they can kind of reshape it and bring it into the current moment. Um, I will give Keith Ulick some credit, too. He, he clearly had time to go back and rewatch Fire Walk with Me and, and do all this sort of research on it. And he pointed out things which I did not realize, which are that the scene that we see in the return here is actually a scene from The Missing Pieces. It's not the scene that appears in the original film. Um, there was more than one take because the dialogue is delivered differently. And then also, very oddly, um, the scene in The Return, it's not actually David Bowie speaking. It's someone's voice, yeah, that's been overdubbed over Bowie. Yeah, which is so strange. I mean, I'm sure there are practical reasons for it, but it's still very strange. Oh, I, I did not know that. So technically, only Bowie only makes a visual appearance. I guess so. Yes. I guess so. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And I'm not sure the reason for that, but it, it kind of, it does work. It kind of adds like a, a level of uncanniness to it. Um, and then I wonder, cause I also rewatched Firewalk with me recently as well. Like while I was watching the return, cause I was like, uh, I would need a refresher and I'm really glad that I did. Cause in, in that, um, like there still is that a, a variation on that scene where he's like, who is that there? Or who do you think that is there? And then there is also like Annie's reappearance where she, she says like, there's two Coopers like Dale or like, you know, Dale's like caught in, or stuck in the lodge. And I like this idea that, you know, like the truth is out there all this time. Like, you know what I mean? It's like secrets are out in the open. They're kind of, they're in the form itself. It's just, you have to be ready to be able to see them or be like receptive to them. Um, and so, you know, to go back to, like, Cole's dream, it's like, you know, he had, there there were clues, there were hints there that this might be the case all of this yeah. time. And just, yeah, it, the journey it took to get to the point where he could be actually ready to understand what it meant for, you know, uh, Philip Jeffries to say, who do you think that is there that uh, that might not be Dale? that there might be different Dales or was Phil Jeffries coming from, you know, like now, like the return time now, 
when he came into the office then. I don't know. There's like a weird Mobius strip of like time happening and it's unclear. Yeah. <laughs> My nut hurts. <laughs> um, but yeah, I like that. Uh, I, I like the way you phrase that, Sarah, of this idea of sort of, um, again, that it's maybe less about like there being the existence of sort of clues or like epistemological truth or whatever and more about almost like the spiritual way in which like people sort of need to be able to like accept it or see it or be ready for it or something. Um, I, th I think that's very much sort of part of what, what Lynch and Frost are interested in here. Um, and it brings us to maybe the other major part of Cole's dream, which we haven't uh, talked about yet, which is the quote from, uh, and I'm sure I'm going to pronounce this wrong. The Upanishads? Upanishads. 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 There you go. Yes. That sounds right. I'm going to take your word for it. Upanishads. Um, which are uh, basically like the sort of like ancient um, texts of the uh, Hindu religion. And then also uh, Buddhism uses them as well. And um, anyway, so this is the line that Baluchi quotes in part where she says, this is the, um, we're like the dreamer who dreams and then lives inside the dream. And there's, there's like a, an extra textual reference here as well, which is that Lynch um, used to read the longer version of that uh, quotation uh, before screenings of Inland Empire. Um, and Oh, yeah, that's right. Yes, yeah. And so there, there's clearly, this is clearly something that's sort of on Lynch's mind, this question of, like, how, how storytelling and how dreaming and how all of these things sort of create the world um, that we then are sort of within. And I, the, the other line, I actually wrote it down here. Let me see if I can find the later part of the quote. Um, the, the, the latter part of the quote that Lynch is working from after this sort of, that we dream and then we're in the dream is, we create our world and then enter into that world. We live in the world that we have created. And I, I thought that was just such a perfect like description for everything that's going on in this whole episode, which is again, this idea of like multiple vantage points, multiple ways of approaching the same thing. Um, the idea that sort of everybody is bringing all of their own experiences and, and history and a way of seeing things, um, to it and therefore are going to see it differently and experience it differently. And, and as Sarah just pointed out there as well, like people are at different kind of stages in relation to their own self-knowledge and their own understanding. And so they're going to see things differently as well. Um, and I think what's been interesting is, is watching people on Twitter, particularly like pick up that question and then and then basically sort of obsess about this idea of like who is the dreamer as if this is lynch hinting that there might be some you know like as you say simon uh uh saint elsewhere ending where it's like there is there is a dreamer and this is all happening in some in in, in someone's mind or this is going to be this big reveal or something and i really i don't think it's that i in fact i think it's the opposite i think what lynch is sort of pointing out here repeatedly is that there is no dreamer. Like the idea is, is that it's not, it's not divisible. There is no point at which you can separate the person experiencing the world and the world being experienced. Like they, they're co-constitutive of each other. They create each other. We're all sort of part of the world. The world's part of us. We're creating as it, we're creating it as it is creating us. I mean, I, I think this is like one of the things that's so wonderful about Lynch. I mean, I think it, people can find that frustrating when they approach what Lynch is doing with the assumption that, the subjective view must always be opposed to the objective view as if there is some clear overview of like the world and the truth out there that we just can't get at because we're stuck in our subjective viewpoint. I don't think that's what Lynch is interested in at all. I think Lynch is like just interested in the idea that subjective viewpoints are like is all that there is and they're ever proliferating. And it doesn't mean that we're lacking something. It means it's how we experience the world. That's just what it is. Um, anyway, that's my like philosophical meandering for now, but I loved it. <laughs> The real Twin Peaks was the friends we made along the way. <laughs> You're joking, but that's totally how I feel about it. <laughs> <laughs>
But, you know, I mean, people often get upset if they're like, oh, it was all a dream or like it was all someone's dream. Uh, but I think that's kind of like to underestimate dreams, like the way that Lynch approaches dreams. It's almost as though they're just a different way of articulating experience. You know, like they're still part of reality. They're still part of the world. And there's a kind of like equivalence, like a of existence between dreams and realities. It's not something that's like overlaid onto reality, but that has like equal weight and equal measure. And um, I don't know. I just, I really like this, this idea of like, you're not, what dreams articulate is not, you know, some sort of truth. It's just a different way of like articulating uh, the experience of the world. Like that can't be, or it cannot be articulated in reality itself because you know the structures we've created make it impossible so we go to dreams to actually articulate these things and so that's why they're wonderful spaces to kind of explore and like find uses for them like our ways of like interpreting them to have for better understanding yeah. so uh since we've not entirely deliberately on my part in terms of design uh, been working our way backwards through the episode uh, I wanted to to maybe sort of think about wrapping up as we talk about uh, the and I, I I give total credit to like Twitter people and other people who figured this out like 13 episodes ago, but to the uh, revelation that uh, that Diane and Janie yeah. E are in fact step siblings. Is that right? Half half half, half siblings. siblings. Yeah. I'm, I always forget the difference between those. Anyway, um, and. I mean, A, so, like, congratulations to the people who figured that out based solely on the letter E. <laughs> but also, I mean, how, like, it's it's a funny scene just in, in, in the way that Laura Dern plays her animosity towards Janie E, who we know to just be, like, this very, like, bubbly sort of, like, overtly pleasant sort of presence the mo most of the time, unless, of course, you're uh, trying to mess with her money or husband. And just the, I mean, the major takeaway from that has to be, and and yet another reason that I'm just waiting with bated breath for the next episode is like I'm I, I I cannot they had better not they can make me wait for anything they want they can make me wait for Cooper to wake up even if it never happens but they cannot make me wait more than like 15 minutes for the Laura Dern Naomi Watts scene <laughs> next week they cannot they are not allowed I love the part where she's like yeah we're estranged I hate her. <laughs> I, I love the idea too that they're kind of like they're kind of inverses of each other like you know Janie E is this sort of like bubbly optimistic kind of like yeah uh, and then J Dan is like F everything I hate all of you it's uh, there, there is something very fun about that um, I mean I think the question as like you know lots of fans have picked up on is is whether Diane is even telling the truth I mean it's quite possible that this is made up that like she isn't that that um, Janie E is not her sister and that this is sort of simply a ruse on behalf of evil coop to lead the FBI agents to Las Vegas or something. Um, I mean, I sort of doubt it. I expect that they will turn out to be actual sisters. Um, but it, in a lot of ways, it opens up more interesting questions about sort of what, what Diane's role is in all of this, um, on a simply plot level. But, uh, but yeah, no, I did, I did find that a fun, a fun scene. Um, especially after we've had, uh, Tammy in long conversation with Albert, um, you know, maybe still struggling a little bit on the performance and things. <laughs> it's the scene with Tammy, like, did not... Did, it's not that the scene didn't work, because the scene works fine, but but her performance still, for me, kind of sticks out in a way that, that takes me out of the show a little bit. I do like her better when they stick her in a chair. <laughs> 
Yeah, sitting down better than standing up. Um, sure. Just fewer, fewer moving parts. <laughs> there are a couple of other things we haven't talked about yet. Uh, I don't know if people have more things to say about Diane, but we have to get a reference to Stan Rizzo from Mad Men playing an FBI agent on the return because that was so perfect that I just, like, it was like manna from heaven. That, that for me, stuck out as maybe one of those sort of classic... Like, it, it flashed me back to the idea of people watching the show 27 years ago and just finding the whole thing so inexplicable. That that struck me as, like, a version of that now, where it's just the performance is, is just modulated to just to such an extreme degree, and it's and the whole scene takes place in such a short kind of time span that at, at, as soon as it ends, it just leaves you sort of looking around being like, what, what just happened? But it's very funny, especially when you watch it again. It, it makes me laugh pretty hard, uh... This joke of like, how do you not know that our job as FBI agents is to look for people? Um, yeah, it's it's pretty good. The well, and this sort of we sort of talked a lot about the individual elements of the episode, but one thing I, I want to throw out there is like, how are we feeling about the way the show is paced? Like the fact that, as I sort of alluded to earlier, like we had two straight episodes where plot wise like not a lot happened and then this week it seems like not only did like many things we've sort of been waiting for happen in one way or another but then like a whole other set of things we had no idea to expect also happened uh it, it just seemed like like again the, the density of incident was so much higher this week uh i'm just wondering how people are feeling about the show's handling of of pace i God, I don't even know. I mean, somebody, um, we had like a friend staying here and he, uh, who does listen to the Lodgers podcast. So hi, Benny. Um, Benny was staying here. What up? <laughs> um, he was staying here and he uh, has been traveling in China I was only able to watch the previous week's episodes uh, by downloading them off of Chinese internet and then watching them in a library in the afternoon <laughs> so he can watch part 14 with us in the evening. And um, he was sort of saying like, oh, this is so weird watching part 14 right after watching the previous episodes because part 14 has such a different vibe than the previous ones. And I sort of surprised myself by being like, I actually can't remember like what happened in the previous weeks. And I... You know, some of that, I think, as you say, some of it is just this idea that, like, there wasn't maybe much incident in them. But at the same time, it's also, like, every scene feels like it's so packed with things. I mean, I, I think somebody um, really smart on Twitter, I don't remember whose tweet this was, but somebody made a really sharp point on Twitter, which was this idea that, like, maybe the way The Return is is quite a bit like the filmmaker we've mentioned here before, uh, Jacques Rivette. The way that The Return is like Rivette's stuff is that... Um, Basically, like, secondary characters are, are given sort of as much importance as primary characters. Everything, there's, there's almost too much detail happening all the time, but, but the detail is given such, like, grace of importance and, like, presence that it's quite difficult to tell what you're supposed to be paying attention to or not. But it also means it's, like, everything is important, so it's hard to say, like, for me, I'm not finding the pacing to be so noticeably different from episode to episode because I'm so engrossed by all of it. So even when we have an episode like this where there's a lot of sort of more narrative development, it doesn't actually feel that different to me in a lot of ways. I, I don't know. Maybe that's not a very like good critical answer, but it's but it's how I've been feeling. I don't know. Yeah, I feel that way too. I mean, I also, because I just rewatched Fire Walk With Me recently, like I, I couldn't help but like think about um, when you're asking about the pacing, Simon, about like, the, there's like a scene between um, Donna and Laura, and there's like, they're like lying down, they're talking about like falling in space, like, you know, whether or not it's going to be you're like, you're going to slow down after a while or go faster and faster. And Laura's like, oh, you're just going to get faster. It's just going to go faster. And so I feel like, I don't know, like, it's a nice way to kind of like, um, frame it 
you know, it, it's getting faster and faster towards the end. That's just like how how things how things fall. I just took a moment to try to see if I could figure out who made that quote about the Twin Peaks recently being Rivetian. And I, I found a funny tidbit about someone found a review that Jacques Rivette wrote of Fire Walk With Me. Oh, I've read it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and someone and people are already sort of joking around about the fact that Rivette is like, because he hadn't watched the show, uh, but, he, but he did say essentially like, oh, I, I was a step ahead of the film. I could tell the, the young lady was going to die. Well done. Yes, that is good. The other thing I wanted to add about the pacing in this episode that's interesting is that um, definitely the scales are tipped and like this, the individual scenes, it certainly feels like there's sort of more happening. But, you know, it's worth pointing out that there are also definite like kind of jokes in here from Lynch about things like where we have the scene where Andy goes to the black and white room and we get so much sort of information, right? Like there's all this development, things seem to be happening, things are moving. And then we cut to the scene with the with the weird drunk guy in the jail with Chad and, and NATO. And it's a very long sequence that, you know, on the surface of it, its entire purpose is basically just to, like, irritate the audience. Like, it's a very difficult scene to just get through physically. It's like the, the you know, e e e e like, noises that, like, the screeching like the and the, the weird, almost, like, the yeah. whole thing. It's just, it's, it, that's very much, again, like, of a piece with Lynch's overall move, which is, like, we might, we might take two steps forward, but then we're going to take a couple of steps where if we're not going backward, we're at least, like, walking in place for a bit, and you're really going to feel, like, something. I, you know, I, I don't know. That, that I found interesting. And the window washing scene, right? Like, it's an interesting kind of like, yeah, it's just like very uh, dissonant, like irritating kind of sound. But and it's like, why is that in there? <laughs> but it's it also kind of illustrates. I think there was one of the podcasts, like one of the episodes you guys talked about technology. I think, Kate, you, you brought it up. Lynch's kind of relationship to technology and the way that he has this kind of fascination with it, the way that it can be used or it, the way it distorts. I don't know. I think, yeah, this might be a good way to to think about technology as like an amplifying uh, force or the way that it accentuates um, or makes stronger sensory experience, which can be a good thing in some regards, but it can also be too much because the human sensorium is like so <laughs> limited. It also felt like in a much more superficial sense, it felt like yet another sort of portend of Cole maybe not being along for this world, but mm. uh, I, I keep I keep saying that, and yet you know I feel like maybe he'll be the only one left alive. Maybe maybe that's what it means. <laughs> maybe maybe he's the dreamer. Maybe he's the dreamer. Um, that's very true. Uh, well, and also the last thing we haven't talked about here is we haven't talked about the women at the roadhouse at the end. Um, yeah, we sort of touched on it. We but... we did a little bit, but um, I did I did want to point out as well though because I. Uh, when I was watching that scene, I was like, that woman looks familiar. Where do I know her from? Is she, was she in Inland Empire? And I completely had not put together that the, she was in Inland Empire, but she is also Lynch's wife. The, like, the friend, um, interrogating the, the girl in a, in a way that doesn't seem quite on the up and up. Like, the, the friend's interrogation seems a little suspicious or something, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I thought that scene was quite interesting, uh, 
the, the Roadhouse scenes, it's interesting that they are becoming sort of more um, attached to the universe. They're sort of less out, out in the universe, more sort of part of what is actually happening here was interesting. Um, well, it's not that they've become more part of the universe, it's that we're sort of understanding they're more part of the universe, right? Like, mm-hmm. I'm assuming that if we go back and rewatch the earlier scenes of people just talking at the Roadhouse, that we'll probably start to forge more connections. Maybe. Uh, with 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 stuff that's happening. I mean, I, that's just a theory. I haven't gone back to watch them, but I th- I still uh, think the the rash rash girl is is still out out floating around in the universe somewhere. I'm not sure. Poor Sky Ferreira. <laughs> oh yeah, I know. And Sky Ferreira actually was really inspired by Twin Peaks, and one of her songs is uh, like quotes Twin Peaks, like it's really? the the lyrics. Yeah, uh, nighttime, my time. It's like um yeah, she took it from like uh, Fire Walk with Me. Yeah, anyway. I think I think that's from Fireworks. Interesting. Yeah. Um, no, I I really love Sky Ferreira as a character. Uh, I I I feel like we should just give a shout out here too because I feel like people were talking about it on Twitter a lot. Like, how are people feeling about this Roadhouse performance? Because I feel like that got a lot of chatter. The like final performance here. How did people find that? By Lissy, right? Like, yeah, Wild Wild West. I thought it was fine. Yeah, I mean, I I, I didn't have any special feelings about it. Uh, the Roadhouse performances are starting to blend together to me, and not only because there's been like repeat performers. Yeah, it's true. I, I didn't mind it, but I will say it did feel a bit jarring after the sort of the whole like, kind of emotional landscape of the episode to go into this sort of like up-tempo, like pop <laughs> song. Um, also, the lip syncing was not great on her performance, which is weird because normally that's been fine. And it, and it did read as quite weird. Like it did, it stood out in a strange way. But um, anyway, sorry, sorry, what were you going to say? No, yeah, I was just going to mention the same thing that, yeah, just the the, the tonal shift. You know, like the music just seemed kind of like uh, it didn't really fit with what had just gone before. All right. And then I have I have one last little tidbit and then I am that I'm ready to wrap up. All I wanted to say, because we I forgot to mention it. We were talking about Monica Bellucci earlier was uh, just as part of another reference to this idea, like this question of whether Lynch is sort of aware of what he's doing in relation to like representations of women or something. There is something so genius about the idea that he says to the people around him, I had another Monica Bellucci dream last night. And like, you know, after you get past laughing at its at its weird oddity, you could imagine that like that's supposed to be something you're almost supposed to cringe at. And and I think you get looks from from uh, Albert and Tammy being like, like, oh, uh, you know, old man is like Monica Bellucci dream. Like, oh, and you're supposed to know exactly what that means. This idea that like she's a very beautiful woman. And so like you would she would only appear in the show as this sort of object for lust. But no, in total genius, like lynch reversal her role in the show is to be this like philosophical like mind opener purveyor of like the true ultimate spiritual knowledge i like i thought i thought that was genius i loved that so anyway that's that's my last little tidbit for this week right and it also makes sense that if there was going to be a true oracle spirit of of cosmic knowledge or whatever that it would be a pretty lady (laughs) i guess i guess that's true but um yeah i suppose i don't know though they haven't historically been pretty ladies on the on Twin Peaks, but anyway, uh, we should be thinking about wrapping up. Uh, but I did want to mention uh, very quickly: if you do enjoy the show and you'll be sad to see us go and all that stuff, because you will listen. You're gonna, we're gonna be gone. We're not gonna keep doing this after the show <laughs> is over. All right, we're not. There will be podcasts that do that, and they'll they will be available to you, and you can go and listen to them every week. But when this is over, the podcast is over. All right, so just get you have to get used to well... the idea of decoupling. Maybe. We well, might, we might maybe. do one wrap-up episode or something, but we're certainly we might, not going to go forever. Yeah, no. We might have s- some bonus stuff, but we're not going to... It's not going to be like... There are still, you know, Lost and Buffy and 
X-Files podcast and stuff like that. And like, no, this isn't going to be one of those. Okay. <laughs> when we're done, we're goddamn done. So just be ready for that. But if you have been enjoying the podcast, do rate review the show on iTunes. Uh, it really helps with visibility. And there's only going to be more Twin Peaks podcasts, more people doing the dumb thing we did where they rewatch the whole thing and talk about it. Uh, but you know, we were the only ones that did it good. So please, <laughs> please rate every, every week I'm going to get more mercenary about this. So just please, it really, it really helps if you haven't done that yet. Uh, anyway, I wanted to thank, uh, Sarah for coming on. Sarah, are you on the Twitters or anything? I am, but not really, but I'm there at, at Feral Ecologies if anyone wants to find me. Fantastic. Uh, Kate, you're on Twitter at Cinement. That's C-I-N-E-M-E-N-T. And I'm on there at Hollowmines. And uh, do check out SortedCinema.com where the show is hosted and disseminated. And you can also find the podcast on Stitcher and a few other places, iTunes, SoundCloud, etc. Assuming SoundCloud still exists by this time next week. Anyway, thank you all so much. And we will be back in roughly a week's time. (laughs) 